Mark chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21 today. So Father, it's in the name of Jesus we come to you and we ask for your presence to, to fill this place, continually fill this place, lead us. The Apostle Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus that they would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and we ask for that spirit to be upon us today, that we would see and hear, that our hearts would reflect your glory, your beauty, Come on, maybe we leave this place with a fresh love for Jesus. May our declaration to this community be, Behold the Lamb of God, who's taken away the sins of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Well, years ago, you guys know how I do. I get stuck on a teacher and I read and study. Years ago, I was reading a lot of a um, of a of a professor, a teacher, of a man named Gary Habermas, and he... He's a great teacher, and he primarily deals with the resurrection of Jesus, um, studying the historical account, arguing for the historicity of the resurrection. But he kind of has this side hobby, the secondary thing that he talks about some, that in the academic world they refer to as NDEs, which stands for near-death experience. Now, in the last 20 years or 30 years or so, um, in the academic community there have been several folks who have started to pay attention to, again, what they're calling NDEs, which would be a story of like an individual who got in a car wreck and for 20 minutes had no brain function, had no heartbeat, and then had some kind of supernatural encounter. Now, these stories have always been around. These testimonies have been forever around, but they began to gather them. And what they're finding is that these people who maybe died during open heart surgery or they died in a car wreck or um, I was reading one recently of a woman who got her kayak stuck under a waterfall, was turned upside down, drowned, was dead for like 25 minutes. What they're finding is that these people with these testimonies of passing away and, and being caught up, um, they actually have a lot of consistencies. And what kind of caught the academic world's attention was these people who have would pass and then were revived 20 or 30 minutes later they were able to give information about things that happened while they had no brain function or heartbeat because they said that they would be in the room watching physicians trying to revive their bodies, that they, they caught it. Now, these accounts are obviously not scripture. And so I'm not saying you should listen to people's encounters and, and read them and study them as if everything they say is perfectly true. Um, people certainly stretch the truth at times. and um, But there's a measure of consistency. I've been reading a a book called Imagine Heaven, listening to a pastor. Um, and, and he gathered a thousand of these NDE stories um, and, and kind of begins to draw out some of the themes and how it shows how some of these people experience things that Scripture speaks of. But I wanted to, I wanted to just draw your attention to uh, part of the testimony of, of the majority, or at least a lot of the NDEs, is people talking about what they call, what they're calling now, a life review. Okay, so these people p pass for 20 or 30 minutes, and they'll say that um, sometimes they describe Jesus, sometimes they describe a man in white who was perfect love, we would call Jesus, doing with them a life review. Now, the people who receive these life reviews, again, maybe they died in a car wreck or whatever, um, receive these life reviews are always shocked or a lot of the time shocked by how little the life review has to do with their achievements, their success financially, their savings accounts, how little their life review has to do about how much they got to travel 
or what they left. But it's almost always about how they treated people. The life review is almost always about whether or not they learned. I don't know when Jesus said the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's like maybe he meant that. And, and maybe when he talks to us about the experience of our life, what rises to the surface is, did you love God vehemently, like with all of yourself? And did you love people? Did you express God's love to people? And that seems to be the theme of the way that Jesus reviews people's lives, at least in these indie experiences. I am... Um, I'm talking to you a lot right now about the Moravians. We've talked about the Moravians in the past, but I'm doing this intentionally, so just buckle up because I'm going somewhere. Um, the Moravians, this group of this community, originally about 300 people uh, in Germany, West Germany, um, in a period of 14 years, I was telling our prayer team, sent out like 300 missionaries, just crazy moves of the Spirit. Well, some Moravians came to the States to minister to Native Americans with the intention of establishing these missionary bases where they would pray, have 24-hour prayer, they would teach the Bible, and they were hoping to reach Native Americans. They they put a colony in Georgia that didn't take so well, but they're, they're ones in, like, you know, has no Moravian Falls in North Carolina. That was obviously the Moravians. Um, and they also had several communities in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem. Um, but one of the things I read this week that captured my heart was, um, as the Cherokee were driven out of Georgia... And forced on the trail of tears, right? That we read and this awful experience um, where they're leaving their homeland and, and sickness and sorrow, the trail of tears. Um, there are these accounts of Moravians leaving their homelands to go meet the Cherokee and to walk the trail of tears with them. And there are these accounts in history of, of Cherokee giving their life to Jesus because of this radical selfless love of these people who did not have to walk that awful trail, but chose to walk it anyway, just to kind of walk in the shoes with someone who was suffering. And now think about that story and this idea of life review. What I'm trying to show you is that in Jesus, we have got to step forward into selflessness into the vision of the Lamb of God for us. You know, Jesus has a vision for us. And his vision for us is not what the world would call success. His vision for us is to carry a cross and to be willing to suffer with those who suffer and to lay our lives down. Paul called us to be living sacrifices, not fat, comfortable Americans. Living sacrifices. And I think that what we tend to do, this is in our humanity. It's just in the humanity of all of us, me included, man. I, I have to really wrestle these things down. What we tend to do is we tend to view the world through our own experiences and then to be drawn to individuals whose life experience is similar to ours. We kind of fight for them. We defend them. And we tend to just kind of ignore or at least have this this very focused view we ignore the peripheral of communities and of individuals who aren't like us and we, we kind of lobby for those who look like us talk like us their socioeconomic classes like ours but think about germans walking the trail of tears what are germans doing i don't know maybe they're captured by the lamb maybe they've seen the wounds of jesus in such a way that it's pierced their own souls 
And their vision is not just to be for those who look like us, talk like us, have the same standards. But their vision is the ethnos, the nations. That's the, the ethnos is the word for nations in the, in the New Testament. The nations will come to Jesus. Now, what I'm going to call us to today is we're going to look at Jesus, his ministry, and we're going to see him minister to two individuals from totally different social standings. And, and what we do oftentimes is we want Jesus to be for the white man or Jesus to be for the black man or Jesus is for people like me. But what we're going to see in the text today is that Jesus just happens to be for both. And the requirement of the church, because Jesus is for, today in our story, um, a a religious man who's well-to-do, who's been faithful to his community. Jesus is for this man, Jairus, and he's also going to be for an unnamed, unclean woman who's not even supposed to be in the city, but grabs him anyway. Jesus is for her too. And you are required to be for those, yes, who look like us and for red, yellow, black, and white, man. All right, let's read the text and I'm going to do my best to, to, to bring this home for us. Okay, we're starting in Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, remember he's leaving the demoniac, he's crossed to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. So he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd. And she touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. Immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child's not dead, but sleeping. They all laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was, taking her by her hand. He said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. He strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Feed the baby. Now, Jesus has returned to Jewish territory. He was run out of the Gentile region, remember? 
because he drove out a legion of demons from this man and the demons went into a pig and drowned themselves. And yeah, I don't know, the, the, the people raising pigs said, please leave because we're trying to make money here. As he comes back to Jewish territory, he's pressed from every angle. People are grabbing him, touching him, surrounding him. And immediately, the leader of the synagogue comes to meet him. The leader of the synagogue is given a name. His name is Jairus. It's possible that as Peter, remember, we believe his church history teaches that the gospel of Mark was written by John Mark as the apostle Peter dictated it to him. So this would be the apostle Peter's eyewitness account. It's possible that Peter, being raised in this region, knew Jairus. Knew, of course, knew his name. Jairus was the head of the synagogue. Now, the head of the synagogue sometimes um, would have, sometimes there would have been, like we, we do elders, a plurality of elders. Sometimes there would have been two or three men who oversaw the synagogue together. Sometimes it would just be one man. We're not sure which happens here, but he's definitely one of the leaders of the synagogue. He would be in charge of reading the scripture, the scrolls. He would have been in charge of things like um, helping make sure there's there's care for people who are sick. He would have even been in charge of the maintenance of the building, making sure that the synagogue itself was being cared for. And so Jairus is this faithful, it's same, the idea of elders in the body of Christ is that faithful men of, of one wife who serve diligently are the ones who should carry the leadership. And so we could just assume that Jairus is this faithful, diligent, respectful honoring man who led the synagogue, who everybody knew. Now, what we find in the text is that Jairus had one daughter. He had an only daughter and, and Luke's gospel told us that. And Mark tells us that his only daughter was 12 years old. Now I know we've got some dads in the room, but there's something about a little girl that gets you. Um, and there's something about having one little girl. And we could assume again that, that maybe they, they struggled to conceive Maybe they somehow managed birth control in a day without birth control like we think of it. Um, but but having one child is, you cherish that, that child. You love that child. And it's easy from the text to draw the idea that Jairus is a somewhat wealthy man, a respectable man in the community who is wrapped around his 12-year-old daughter's finger. And you could assume from the text that this 12-year-old daughter is his prize and joy. His life, his life. You know, if one of my daughters, I don't have one, I have 74. Um, no, I only have three daughters. Um, but if one of my daughters were in danger, I'm ready to die today, right? Like I, I would lay my life down today for one of those little girls. This is his life. Now, this respectable teacher of the word, faithful man, throws himself at the feet of a rather... um What's the word we want to look for? Controversial rabbi, teacher. Right? Jesus isn't your mainly, mainstream religious teacher. And so it's not people in Jairus' standing are still leaning back going, Meh, I don't know about this guy. But Jairus is driven to this place of desperation because his life and joy, the scripture says, he's, he uses the phrase, is, is passing away quickly. She's dying. She is dying. His only daughter, 12 Years of joy, 12 years of ecstatic joys he's had with this baby girl, and now she is dying quickly. Throws himself at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says to the leader of the religious community, Jairus, of course I'll go with you. Now to this point in the text, we all love Jairus. 
We sh- and we should. He's he's a good dude. His only daughter's dying. You know, you watch this on Hallmark. You're for the man, okay? For him. And and Jesus starts to walk with Jairus. They're headed towards the baby girl. Now, on the way, we're introduced to a second character. She has no name because she is not important in the community. No one knows her name. She has a discharge of blood, TMI, but this is a scriptural implication. It, it most assumed that there's some kind of menstrual issue happening here. And in the law in Leviticus, when a woman is experiencing a discharge of blood, she is considered unclean, not to be near the temple. And anyone who touches a woman who is unclean is themselves unclean until sundown. And so this unclean woman has been unclean for 12 years. So Jairus has had 12 years of joy. She's had 12 years of agony. Now, she is poor. Jairus, we assume, is wealthy. I I imagine Jairus works hard as a diligent man. Those are honorable traits. She is poor. She spent, the scripture says, every dime that she had on physicians, and she's sicker today than she's ever been. Some of us sitting in the room now as I'm telling the story, you identify with this woman more than you identify with the wealthy, successful man. You're finding yourself beginning to sway. The text wants you to realize, to see that there is a distinction happening. She is not only poor, she's embarrassed. Okay, she doesn't just have a physical issue. She's got a physical issue that's a little bit embarrassing. And she's lonely, lonely. And and this issue is, is shameful. She's ashamed. So Jesus is on his way with Jairus, the religious leader, The crowds are pressing around, and this woman, unclean woman, does the unthinkable. Number one, she forces her way into a crowd, technically making everyone who touches her unclean. She's desperate enough. She ain't worried about your standing. She's worried about her own. You can deal another day. This is about me today. And she says, notice, this one wants you to notice. Jairus said, if you would touch my, come lay your hands on my daughter, she would be healed. And this woman says, if I could just touch the fringe of his garment. I could be healed. Both recognize that they need to grab hold of him. So the woman secretly, you have to catch this in the text, secretly, she says, I'm going to sneak. She's a sneaky little lady. She sneaks through the crowd. Jesus is walking, you could assume talking with Jairus, and she grabs the fringe of her garment and she felt something. The text said that the blood immediately dried up. Praise God. To her terror, Jesus felt something too. And Jesus said, power has left me. Who touched me? The disciples, remember, said, Jesus, what are you talking about? There's 300 people touching you. And Jesus is saying, no, someone in faith touched me. I felt power leave. Now, this everyone's kind of stopped and paused. And this is turning into a bit of a scene because Jesus is making it a scene. He's saying, now someone, someone touched me. She crawls. She hits the ground and crawls in front of Jesus like a dog that's been kicked too many times. She's embarrassed. She, again, she didn't just, she didn't just grab him. She technically made him unclean, right? She's, she, she's, unba- she's embarrassed. She's ashamed. She crawls before him and says, it was me. This is the only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus uses this word. It's fascinating. 
Jesus says, daughter. Now, Jairus' daughter is sick and his love and compassion is driving him to desperation to pursue healing for his daughter. Jesus nowhere else will ever call anyone daughter except for this woman who's totally embarrassed, totally ashamed, totally crippled with anxiety and fear that other people know now. Jesus looks at her and does not say, you don't deserve this. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you sneak up on me like that? What is this hide and seek? Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go. That, that, that phrase, some of us in the room, you have felt your whole life like nothing goes your way. You have felt your whole life like you've never been given a leg up. You, you look at people who are successful and you assume, yeah, your daddy probably gave you the money. Your parents paid your way through college. If you had to grind like me, if you had 12 years of agony like me, maybe you would know what it's like for people like me who struggle and suffer. And Jesus would say to you, you don't have to earn anything, daughter. My love for you is enough. You're still daughter. Now, from here, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of explaining you the text. I'm trying to draw all these points out. From here, there's a moment of crisis because Jesus said power left him and power left him to heal her. And so as she's healed and Jesus is having this conversation with her, two things happen. The little girl died and Jesus has had power leave. And so immediately you can imagine the crowd start to go, that woman just stole Jairus's daughter's healing. And he's been faithful and he's served our community. He's worked hard. God helps those who help themselves. And she didn't deserve that. She didn't deserve it. You stole Jairus's healing. How much power does Jesus have? You know, you, you, he's at half percent, 50% battery now. He's, he's got to go. He's going to have to fast and pray for three weeks to get recharged. And the time. She started dead. It's over. It's, it's over. And, and that's the way we think. We, I, again, I have seven kids in my home. I love every one of them. But seven's a big number. Okay. And so Haley was this week grocery shopping for sevens a lot. I don't do it. Praise God from who all blessings flow for my wife. She actually doesn't do it either. She orders it offline for the record. Just getting that out there. Um, I listened to my seven-year-old say to my wife in the kitchen this week, mom, somebody keeps eating my popsicles. And, and Haley said, Fran, that's her name, Francis. Francis is in the room. God bless you. Francis, those popsicles belong to everybody. But you know, if you grew up in a big family, if you have two popsicles and you have two popsicles, that leaves me no popsicles. And we tend in our natural fallen state to think of our standing with God that way. If, if this woman, this, this poor, unimportant, unnamed woman gets healing, then Jairus gets suffering. But Jesus says, watch me. They say the girl is dead. They're wailing, they're moaning, they're creating commotion. And Jesus kind of says in his own way, like, why are you guys so dramatic? Stop. She's sleeping. Then he sends everyone out, just Peter, James, and John, and the parents. 
And he says to the woman with no, zero showmanship. There's no drama in this line of scripture. There's no um, kind of shaman jumping up and down. Just simply says, little girl, get up. They think your power has been drained. Jesus says, hey, get up. His, his power cannot be drained. And immediately, the, the 12-year-old girl who's had 12 years of good life with a father and mother who love her gets the same miraculous touch as the 12-year suffering, lonely, embarrassed, poor, shameful woman gets. They both get a touch from Jesus. And we have to begin to draw some conclusions out of this idea. One, let's just get the obvious off the table. We serve a God who is omnipotent. He does not drain. Meaning, I can pray for your blessing. I can pray for your healing. I can pray for the favor of God to fall on your life. And those answered prayers do not anyway give me zero popsicles. Right? There's enough of God to bless those who... Though your neighbor, to bless your, your cousin, your co whoever you're praying for, there's enough of God to meet that individual here with blessing, power, favor, anointing, grace, and then for God to meet me tomorrow when I'm struggling with my own emotional needs. He does not grow drained. And anyone he sees fit to heal, they will be healed. Jesus has no lack. He, he knows no lack. Omnipotent. The second omni that I think we don't talk about enough and we should talk about, let's just do it, is what theologians call omnibenevolence. Omnibenevolence meaning that his goodness also never dries up. So he's got the power to heal both. He's also got the, the love, the compassion, the benevolent, like good will towards them to heal both. He's for both. His omni. Benevolence. What we learn about Jesus is that he has no limitations and he happens to love people just like you and people that are not like you. And again, we, we tend to settle in these pockets and I don't mean to be too pointed, but let me just say, I, I hear in our community, right? Um, there are some who have worked really hard. You've saved your whole life. You're prosperous financially, but, but from your sweat, right? You worked hard. You didn't necessarily get gifted. You worked really hard. And, and then there are others in our local community, even our church body, who are, who, are, who are not prosperous, who have not excelled. And we tend to go, you know, there are enough jobs in this community that if you wanted to succeed, you could. We tend to think, I honor, and lo- I honor people who are business motivated, who have been diligent. I honor people who have um, had consistency in their marriage life. And that, that's good. We should honor those people. But we tend not to think about the fact that there are some folks who spend every dime they had on a doctor who couldn't help them. We, we tend to have a narrow lens through which we see the world and see justice. And there are others, some of you here, again, maybe like me, I felt this way for a long time growing up. I felt like I'd never get a hand up. Never. Anything I got in my life, I was going to have to work hard for. And sometimes that's the goodness of God towards people like me, to teach you some diligence, to teach you some responsibility. 
but you tend to throw stones at and point your finger at those across maybe the financial. Sometimes this is an ethnic aisle, and you would say, they've all got it easy. You can suffer a little while, Jairus. You can get a little bit of 12 years of agony like the rest of us. You don't get everything to go your way. But God's justice, again, is birthed from a heart that is able, listen, listen to me for a second. Our, our pastor used to teach this to us, and I never understood it perfectly. Our pastor used to always say, God in his, in his omnibenevolence, in his omnipotence, in his omniscience, God is able to love you as if you are his favorite only child. Every, our pastor used to say, every believer should feel like they are God's favorite. He's, you are, you are, you are his favorite son, his favorite daughter. His eyes are totally focused on you. And God is able to love your wife as if she is his absolute favorite. And able to love your kids as if they are your absolute perfect, his perfect favorite. God in himself with overflowing perfect power, perfect goodness, and perfect love aims his mercy and his graciousness totally violently at every child who would throw themselves before his feet, whether they come from that side of the railroad tracks or that side of the railroad tracks. And because God does that, he loves violently everyone who would come to him. He then requires his church to look at him long enough that that value begins to grip your soul. And at some point in your Christian life, you have to ask yourself, where is my trail of tears? Where in my life have I so embraced the violent love of God towards all people that I'm willing to search out those in suffering and desperation and walk with them even though I'm German and they're Cherokee? Even though this law affects their families, not mine, I'm still going to carry the love of Christ into their situation for the sake of the gospel. When does that happen in your heart? When does that happen in the, in the community, in the heart of our community? When we start to say, man, red, yellow, black and white, rich, poor, lonely, successful. I, I'm Count, Count Zinzendorf was the, the leader of the Moravian movement. Um, and he used to say this, every heart with Christ is a missionary. And every heart without him is a mission field. When do we embrace that? When does that leave the place of theory and become practice in our community? Right? Like the, the fact that you're sitting down today and I'm standing up doesn't make me the missionary and you the, the, the viewer. Right? If you said yes to Jesus, you're called to carry the kingdom. And every person in your life without Jesus, they're your mission field. Are you on assignment? Do you carry the radical love of God in you and, and birth it forward? Or are we selfish? And gosh, let me say this for a couple minutes. We, at our, our house, our community, we have em, embraced scriptural authority, meaning um, matters of sexuality and matter, matters like abortion. We are going to continually say what, this, what the word of God says is true. Like life is beautiful and valuable Period. We're, we, but the narrative in society is that conservatives must be angry and selfish. And I just want to say to our community, why not stand up and say, watch me? And in my life, and I'm not, I'm not trying to 
bolster myself because I suck in so many ways. But in my life, I've preached for years, for 10 years at least, abortion is evil. Abortion is wrong. If you've had an abortion, there's grace for you. Turn to Jesus. Please don't do it again. Abortion is evil. I've said it over and over again. And people have said, you're just mean. You don't care about kids. Okay, the state will not allow me to have another foster child in my home because every room is full. The fire marshal will not allow us to have any more kids. And, and, and that's not to pat myself on the back because, again, there are a lot of areas where I need to grow. I need to grow. But I am saying, as an example in our community, at some point, we have to say, we stand for these values and we love people more radically than you love people because we've seen the love of Jesus in a way you haven't. The church, I just say this again, do you know why there are Baptist hospitals? Because Baptists open the hospitals. Do you, do you know why there are Methodist orphanages? Because the church said, oh, maybe we need to be taking care of the orphan. I'm going to challenge our community today. This is a challenge. How can we look with our eyes to see the suffering in this region and engage it with the love of Jesus? It's going to require to walk a trail of tears. You are going to sweat a little bit. To walk a trail of tears, you are going to exert some energy, right? I don't like getting off the couch either, but sometimes we've got to do it. To walk a trail of tears, it's going to be hot. It can be long. You might get sick too. It's not like just the Cherokee gets sick. You might get sick too. To walk a trail of tears, we have got to get up with the power of God in our souls and say, show me the hurting. Show me the desperate. Show me the needy. Show me the lonely. Show me the widow. And I will come with, with gospel love. But, but I just, I'll just say it. I'll just say it too. Man, without, without being harsh, let me just say it. If you find yourself relating more with Jairus, you know, just a consistent, faithful, blessed life, man, you, you might need to stop for a moment and look across on the other side of the railroad tracks, look around a little bit, and, and find you a trail of tears to walk. And, and to those who you find yourself identifying more with the woman who feels unloved and ashamed, and you've grown a little bit bitter, you need a fresh encounter with the love of God to rid you of your bitterness because God might be calling you to minister to people who look successful but are actually empty. But if you're so bitter because you had to grind and grit for everything you had, you'll never be able to look to the other side and say, oh, you need Jesus so bad. Sometimes the men who lead the most successful businesses are still desperate for Jesus. Are our eyes open to the mission field? Are they? Have we seen this in Jesus and embraced it? Let's stand to our feet and we'll get ready to close. Worship team, you can come for me. One, this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you've heard the gospel, maybe this is your first time, we want to encourage you that what the Bible gives us is actually an offer. There's an offer on the table this morning for you. What the Bible says is that every man, every woman, every boy and girl, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all deserving of judgment. God's holy standard is so much higher than anything any human outside of Jesus has ever achieved. What the Bible says is that the the only way to come into relationship with God, to to have everlasting life, to, to, to have a new heart, is to receive forgiveness. 
The offer on the table this morning is forgiveness, is grace. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus, the perfect man who never sinned, although died a death that was awful, a murder that was awful, that his blood would pay the price for your sins. So you this morning could have a transaction, a holy transaction, where you place your sins and your guilt upon Jesus, and he places upon you righteousness, forgiveness, a new heart, grace. This morning, you don't have to leave here guilty or ashamed. You can leave here new in Christ Jesus. That's the offer on the table. And if you leave here far from God, if you leave here in judgment and sin, that's on you this morning. Because God's saying, come. God's saying, today is the day of salvation. Come. Two, there are some of us here who feel so unlovable. You feel like this embarrassed woman who's outcast from community, who's lonely. And God, you feel like you've got to earn something from God, like you haven't done enough. You've got to grind grit to get God's attention. And today I want to, I want to just open the altars and say, if that's you, if you feel unloved, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and give you a fresh revelation of the radical love of God towards you in which God says, you're my favorite. You feel like everybody hates you. You feel like you've got to work hard. You feel like you're religious enough. And God says this morning, no, 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 no. You you are actually my favorite child. If that's you, I want you to come to the altar as they open. And we're going to press in um, for that breakthrough. Three, I think there are some of us who need to respond just to the just to the trail of tears, man. You just need to respond to this idea of my life is going to embrace God's mission to reach all people, whether they look like me or not. I am going to step out of my selfishness. Listen, I'm going to step out of my narrow view and look around and engage broken people with the love of Jesus. If that's you, I want you to respond tangibly this morning. I want you to come forward, get in the altar and say to God, my life will be a living sacrifice. The altars are open. I want you to come. Altar team, do you guys mind getting in place? I want you to come. You're feeling unloved this morning? Come. You want to say to God, today I dedicate my life to carry this gospel to the ends of the earth. I want you to come. You want to give your life to Jesus today? Come.